and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Ariel Renee Jackson is a video sculpture installation artist whose work addresses issues around how systems and the individual are intertwined using mundane and everyday objects as her medium. The work is often connected to the past and her family history. She's currently working on her master's degree at the University of Texas at Austin. After the interview, do yourself a favor and check out her work at arieljackson.com. Here is Ariel. Well, thanks for being on my show, Ariel. Thank you for having me. So yeah, I recently met you when I was visiting Deborah Roberts' studio. And she was on the podcast last year, and that's like one of my favorite episodes, one of my most popular. People really love how vulnerable she was about her life, and she's really come a long way since then, has had so much success. It must be pretty inspiring to be around that. Yeah, I mean, when I heard her on the podcast, it kind of felt like she was how she appears to be when you like you oh, get to yeah. know her. Like, it just sort of really spoke to reality of mm-hmm. like the kind of person she is, sort of how she's able to intuitively bring in her life experiences in a way where it feels recognizable, not pretentious, and, I don't know, just very kind of like um, disarming. Hmm. I guess that would be the way that I would put it. Yeah, because she's so real and yeah. open. Yeah, she reminds me a lot of some of my family members, which I think is just like really nice because mm. she's like super casual, but she also sort of like flips between sort of this level of seriousness and then this level of play. Yeah. And so I think that's a very real place to be is to sort of be a pendulum swing mm-hmm. between both of those. I'm wondering in other ways how she is influencing or inspiring the work that you're doing now. The way that we talk about things has been definitely inspiring, that we can be very casual, we can point out sort of the comedy and the tragedy, but also the uh, reality in like, in, in, in the despair of just like the diaspora and just sort of um, able, it's nice to be able to talk to someone that understands what you're going to say before you say it, mm-hmm. so that you're not over explaining. Yeah. I think it allows for your thoughts and your feelings to sort of roam free um, mm. without sort of being like, and 
now I have to explain what this thing the is. The backstory. You know? If anything, yeah. there might be like, you know, um, a bit of age gap, but that's like, I think that part of it is also just like a part of like exchanging back and forth. Cause I grew up with my, I grew up around people older than me and I, I think I'm a bit more comfortable. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm the same around, way. Actually. Around older people. It's like, I feel less fear of messing up. Hmm. Um, around older people. I don't know why that is. I think because when you're around someone younger, like I'm thinking about myself when I'm around somebody younger, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. And so I feel like that's something that I need as I'm sort of growing as mm-hmm. an artist and as an individual. Yeah, you give them room. Right. Well, maybe you could, for those that are listening that don't really know much about you, maybe you could just kind of introduce yourself and kind of what you do. So my name is Ariel Renee Jackson. I am a video sculpture installation artist. I make work thinking about systems, either systems of oppression or systems um, that require a kind of navigation for survival and prospering. Right now, I'm thinking a lot about creating yards and thinking about um, what it means to dress the yard, what it means to create joints, heal joints by sort of create binding points. And and I guess on a certain level, a lot of my work has to deal with um, sort of conjuring meaning or, and conjuring sort of the figure in the mm. work to sort of see, to make either comments or to mull around how systems and the individual are intertwined, sort of pushing against each other and sometimes finding each other necessary. And you're working on your master's at the University of Texas. Yes, at the that's moment. correct. That's correct. I'm in the Department of Transmedia and hmm. in the Department of Print. Don't ask me what transmedia means. Okay. Um, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> has something to do with media. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's where you fit in, I guess. Uh somewhere in between that. Yeah. But um you actually find me nowadays in sculpture. So I think really um I think good master programs for the arts are interdisciplinary or at least allow themselves to be the program that I'm in. I feel like there are a lot of people who are slipping in and out of their department into other places. Um, It makes a lot of sense to explore. I mean, that's probably the purpose of having that space. Yeah. And figure things out. And also just like having such a small class. I think we have, we have 12 in each year, very small. What's really nice about that is that, at least for me, sometimes I forget which department people are in yeah. because it's more about their practice. Like yeah. you, you're reminded because you're walking to their studio, which happens to be next to other photographers. But when you're talking to them about their practice, it has less to do with the medium and more to do with, I think, the research, the methodology, the concept behind what they're doing. Yeah, the intention and kind of the openness to use whatever medium is most appropriate. And also just like um, being able to understand that their choice of medium has less to do with what makes sense and maybe sometimes more to do with um, what they're interested in, invested in exploring. Because like some classmates of mine are sort of dealing with topics that would make 
great research books, but are exploring it through a photographic lens of like hmm. merging and splitting images together. So I think like, you know, a lot of the topics that are explored could be explored through books, but it's very interesting to sort of see how it sort of becomes realized in the realm of photography or painting. Yeah, just a different way to communicate yeah. the same thing. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like a pretty exclusive program if there's only uh, 12 people. It's that very competitive. Leads me to think that that was hard to get into. <laughs> it's very competitive. Um, I recommend it to a lot of people because I think it's a very well-kept secret. I think a lot of art students are applying to places like Yale and UCLA. And so UT doesn't always fall on the map mm-hmm. uh, in terms of where a student is looking to attend. But um, it it just has so many resources. And of course, it it depends on what you're looking for out of your graduate experience. Mm -hmm. It's a very research-oriented program. Mm. So there's a lot more emphasis on that, where maybe for some people, research isn't really, at least research in the sense of like looking through archives and whatnot, isn't as important. Like at the Ransom Center or elsewhere? Yeah, Ransom Center are just the fact like um, having the online access being able to get on, get on JSTOR is very helpful, which I'm sure many universities have that. But to use that as a jumping off point and then know that you have a facility that you can go to in person if you want to actually like see it or see what's missing. That's, I think, the great benefit of UT's um, libraries. And that was the reason you chose it, because your practice involves a lot of research? I chose it because it was... Um, it was between UT and Penn Design because they're both like research heavy um, universities. I knew that I wanted to um, invest part of my time researching. Um, researching, I thought I really wanted to look into the history of black farmer disenfranchisement mm-hmm. um, because my grandparents were farmers in Louisiana. And they grew soybean, rice, and crawfish. And uh, they had between 300 and 400 acres. Oh, wow. Which is like, yeah, it's one of the rare numbers of uh, amount of acres that black farmers could have. And um, and so they lost a lot of that, majority of it, actually, um, during the 80s. And it wasn't until the mid-90s that a case called Pigford versus Glickman came forward where a group of black farmers came together and said, hey, these contracts don't look right. They found out that the contracts basically were giving them a higher interest rate. So they weren't able to compete. And then you also have to consider the fact that a lot of people from my grandparents' generation, you know, if they're in their 80s and whatnot, and if they're black and then they're they're from the rural area of anywhere, they most likely didn't have education to be able to understand that jargon. So that was my intention for going to grad school because I was like, how do I deal with that kind of loss of property in a system that is so tied together and wound together around education? How did you witness or experience the pain of that with your grandparents? Like, how did they voice that to you or how did... Yeah, um, how did I... Well, I always in the back of my mind knew, well, not in the back of my mind, but when I would visit my grandmother... Her house is on the 45 acres, ironically, um, 45 acres of land that they own surrounded by like maybe 200 of the acres that they had owned. So when you go to her house, you're surrounded by Hmm. the actual 
memory and yeah. the land that you, you know you're looking through these uh photo albums and you can see like that's where grandpa stood in the field with his grandson trying to teach him how to farm so it was very in my face but i don't think i had a visceral response until the death of my uncle when my mom told me and my sister that we would one day own that property the 45 acres and that I think really challenged me to think about what does it mean for me to be, to own that property? What kind of farmer could I be in the sense that like I have no interest in going to uh, agriculture school? I do have cousins that have gone to agriculture school specifically for that reason to yeah. bring back their um, our sort of family legacy of farming. But I have no interest in that. I've, I've been an artist. My whole life so I'm like what does that look like in a studio Mm. and so that started my like interest in systems in general and so I was like well it would be great to go to a university that would allow me to sort of understand that history a bit more and eventually that kind of led me to thinking I think about um, about systems that directly affected me so for my grandparents, it was the system of contracts and honestly redlining. I mean, it's... Yeah, I was going to ask you about that for sure. And so for me, I guess I it had always been this kind of focus on redlining, but um, it got to a point where I was thinking like, how does that relate to me? I am not living on a farm. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I have the remnants of that that era, like physically. So I'd go to my grandma's house and... You know, she grew up in the 30s, Great Depression, Mm -hmm. collecting, collecting, collecting things that maybe will have no use, but still collecting it maybe because it might be potentially useful. Mm -hmm. And so I, knowing that she was dying, I just started collecting things. And I don't know why I started doing that. It wasn't sort of like, you know, I had a clear intention. I I think I, I feared that it would be thrown away. Collecting things of hers yeah. at her house. Yeah. yeah, and of my grandpa and my uncle, just like anybody who mm. had been there, um, just sort of really connecting all the all these physical archives to the site, recognizing a level of importance in them. And then could they be lost again, just like the land was lost? Right. I think I think there is a bit of trauma there, in a sense. Like, they had worked their entire life, all for owning like, you know, owning this land to farm this land. And had they had the resources, had they had the education enough, I mean, they would be like a lot of the current big farms today, you know, big business farms. And unfortunately, they couldn't. And so there's that story, which is this legacy of like, you know, the individual working with not working, but like being abused by the system or being like refused entry and having to navigate. And um, recently, so after my grandmother passed, I went back to see sort of what was left now that Mm -hmm. she had passed. And there were a series of documents. And one of them was um, about some farmland that they had hidden and they hid it um, in plain sight. Hmm. And I thought that was very fascinating they hid it in my in my cousin. I, the way that it was written was sort of like, I can't repeat it verbatim because jargon. It basically was saying that the land would be in the name of the child. 
the child. And so therefore, no action could be made on the land until the child came of age. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really poetic, like a poetic navigation of sort of meaning, right? Of um, using the meaning of law to inadvertently create this poetic transition of land to a body. Fast forwarding to now, I'm thinking a lot about spirituality. And at this point, I'm currently working on a chair that my grandmother used to own. And it's a small children's chair. And it almost looks like the kind of chair that you would find in a classroom. And I'm transforming it by adding brooms to the legs, adding chalk to the feet, sort of giving it a new life. And the idea is that I want to record it kind of in a similar way that I did in the uh, show in New York Sculpture Center, where I transformed an archive and used it to do a series of mark makings and sort of um, seeing how it wants to navigate across like a surface while marking it and erasing it. Sort of this negotiation Mm. of its very existence. That's where I, that's where I'm at because I think you know it's a, it's gonna be a long journey of just sort of letting all of those tactics mull around and see how they manifest. Isn't that related to? Uh, it was a word that I wasn't really familiar with. Is it palimpsest? Palimpsest, yeah. Yeah, palimpsest. Yeah, I think a lot about palimpsests. I have that on my website. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in your statement. <laughs> No, I'm just like, because I've, I've changed my statement. I'm oh, in grad okay. school. Give yeah, me a yeah. break. Okay. <laughs> um, but palimpsest. Yeah. So palimpsests are things that are sort of transformed, but still keep their shape. Uh, that's the simplest way that I can describe it. But mm-hmm. um, the context that I've been reading it in and thinking about it in is uh, how do... How are systems sort of recreated to seemingly look different, but are inherently the same? Not entirely disconnected from my work, but in thinking about the prison system as a palimpsest of slavery. That would be a really good example to sort of think about what that means. And so when I'm thinking about my work, I'm really trying to think about what are the terms of negotiation for this sculpture. And for me, like with marking, there has to come, there's going to be some form of erasure and sort of how can I both recognize that act, but also perhaps like control that act. Mm -hmm. So thinking about different ways of erasing through distortion and, and I'm always questioning my use of terms because erasure, I'm like, there has to be another word and i feel like maybe that word is uh diffuse hmm. so that it's not it's not actually disappearing it's not being erased it's sort of dispersing diffusing meaning that it's being mixed with other elements so a lot of times i use soil or you yeah know, i was going to ask you about your use of soil yeah soil um i really love the soil in texas it's very similar to the soil found in West Africa. Um, and I was in Senegal for a month and a half before I started grad school doing a residency there. And I remember the soil being very reddish, very red, actually, red and yellow. And then coming to Austin and sourcing, I just wanted soil from Austin because I knew in Senegal that I wanted to work with soil. 
And when I found the soil in Austin, it was just as red. And I came across a news story about how the sandstorms, I guess they're, they're called the red storms in mm. Houston primarily. It's in a dry part of the year, so I'm assuming summer. But um, the soil, the dirt from West Africa circles up. Yeah. I was just and then travels. That. And so I thought that was like, again, like a kind of poetic thing in a system of like just um, nature happening. That's in the back of my mind as a motivation, but it's also sort of just kind of recognizing the context of where I'm at. And also, you know, of course, playing with the aesthetics of what that is. Location is very important because I think it's important for me to be using my practice as a lens to then participate in other areas, in other places. So even though like I'm talking about my family's relationship with land, it's like, what does it mean for me to then go somewhere else and be thinking about those same, that same history on a different landscape? So like in Austin, I did an installation thinking about redlining in Austin using this map from the 30s, 40s that was used to basically it's color coded map that highlighted in red unusable areas which if you compared it to another map that showed you the demographic of the city, all the areas with red were black and brown. And then it escalates to the color blue, like a turquoise blue. There's like two levels. There's a regular sort of like sea blue, maybe. And then there is like this turquoise blue. And the turquoise is like the rich and the blue is sort of like the middle class. And it corresponded to the race map. And so I wanted to create an installation that created a system that would then be sort of destroyed by the nature of it. And uh, so I did an installation of balloons set up in a grid, black and white balloons. And the blue balloons were coated in blue chalk spray and the black balloons were coated in yellow and red chalk spray to correspond to the map and they were suspended outside in this trailer for cage match which is put on by the museum of uh, human achievement yeah zach traeger helps coordinate that and then for a period of for about a month the balloons were just like you know at the mercy of the weather just suspended there yeah just suspended there and towards the end you could see like some of the balloons had bursted and you could see some of the white parts of the blue balloons come out or be revealed and the black parts of the of the red and um and yellow balloons be revealed and uh i wanted to create a like a kind of poetic natural scenario where that system would sort of play out in a revealing way so i guess like through the erasure like using the destruction of the balloons as a way to reveal reveal this underlying one yeah i think it's so interesting like just in researching you kind of learning about it seems like wherever you go wherever you live you're kind of getting into like you come here and you get in literally get into the soil and you're using the soil here and you're doing all this research i'm just wondering if it would make sense to maybe just kind of go back and explore the origins of how you became an artist or why you're an artist, like go back to Louisiana and just, Hmm. I mean, do you have memories of kind of wanting to be an artist as a kid or how did that? I mean, I was a weird kid. I don't know. I think that that is the beginning. Yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, like I knew how to draw. That was like, I guess, my entryway into the art world. Yeah. I think no matter what, I would have been doing something creative, though. I think one of my current favorite memories is um, I was obsessed with this book called um, Bridge to Terabithia. Yeah, I brought it. It was between that and Harry Potter. And I was just obsessed with being able to, you know, imagine an entire world for myself. And I remember I would, I had my dog at my grandma's house. I had my dog. And when the fields were dry, you could just walk throughout the field. And I had my stick and I would just go out there for hours uh, with my dog and uh, imagine all the things that I had been reading about mm. and just spending a lot of time outside. And, um, oh, I do remember, I do remember um, sort of being there with my grandma when she would like get like a snapping turtle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, delivered to the house like oh, wow. i say delivered it was not like what you think what you might think um, not like a pet <laughs> no yeah. no pets yeah no we would definitely eat them yeah. um it would be like i don't know my cousin would come across a snapping turtle on the side of the road put it in a in a bucket in his uh car and then drop it off at my grandma's house that's when we would eat snapping turtle and just like watching her I think I got so much from just watching her do things in a certain way that just um felt taboo even as a kid but like Mm. really just sort of I mean she would just like rip the shells off I mean these are snapping turtles yeah yeah yeah. I mean she would boil them but like she would just like use a hammer and break it open like you know just thinking about like these other tools or just like a fish like in order to to descale it she would nail it to a tree and descale it that way and now no nonsense just no hesitation whatever is like it took whatever is around whatever feels practical and i and looking back i'm like she probably didn't know what she was doing and was just like well we the turtle's here and we're gonna eat it so i'm gonna figure it out somehow well, I think she knew what she was doing for sure. She probably just figured out the most efficient way to do everything. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever th- made the most sense. I think you're definitely right. Yeah. I think my grandma definitely knew what she was doing. But in my mind, I was just like, what is she doing? Yeah. Oh, okay. It <laughs> just seemed my, a little extreme. <laughs> in my child mind, I was just like, what is happening? Like, <laughs> um, I remember she, there's a lot of armadillos in Louisiana or in rural Louisiana. I've never seen one in the city. But um, a bunch of armadillos would get into her garden constantly. And she hated it to the point where she would go into, one day she went in the back, got my grandpa's shotgun, came out and just started started shooting up her garden. Oh, wow. (laughs) Just started shooting up. It was the front garden. So it wasn't like she was destroying food or anything, but like she was just massacring it because she was just so upset. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And so the armadillos went into the backyard and the the guns weren't enough. So she had to go get an axe. And us kids are just at the door just looking. Yeah. Like, oh no, did grandma lose it? No, she just (laughs) hates armadillos. And she just starts hacking at this armadillo underneath our fig tree. And it's just scenarios like that, that um, is just whatever, whatever worked do you find that you do that yourself in some ways in your life now a lot i think i've adopted that intuition like a decisiveness yeah decisiveness um i mean 
if whenever whenever I got old enough and I would help my grandma or I would help my mom or something, a lot of times it would be like that. Figure it out. Like, just figure it out. And so I think that kind of education is coming through now. But my formal art education was, oh, this kid can draw. Um, let's put them in a class, which is great because I went to the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. Mm. Shout out to NOCA. High school in New Orleans that is its own. Actually, no, they're, they're, they're a full-on high school now. But at the time, it was like a half-day school. And um, there, you know, they, they teach you how to basically make like a body of work. And looking back now, I'm like, that is a skill that that like to think about a series of works and how they speak to each other at at such a young age like that. And so that I think kind of made me think in a narrative way. It really did. Um, Even though like some people were sort of just make not just but were making a series of works that spoke to each other that carried a theme. I would make panels of scenes that would lead into each other. Mm-hmm. And then fast forwarding to college, I went to college at the Cooper Union in uh, New York. There, I actually abandoned painting and went full on to, into animation. And I created a body of work that centered around this alternative character that was navigating space, kind of in a literal way, but also just sort of moving from this fictional home to a fictional like present a lot of that, I think, looking back, was sort of me dealing with culture shock. Mm. Dealing with culture shock and dealing with trying to own the culture that I came from. Because I was like, I think, just in high school in general, was desperately trying to fit in, follow the sort of mainstream culture bits. And so, in a lot of ways, it was a parody of myself, but all the time focusing on navigating. And um, that was Confuserella, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want me to say it. <laughs> no, I did want fine. to ask you about that because in yeah. um, what I had read, it talked about it being like an alter ego or a way mm-hmm. for you to shift your identity or obscure your body and likeness as, mm-hmm. as a way to kind of like express something different than you probably would on your own. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess in a way I was like treating myself like how I'm treating these objects, um, sort of giving it a different purpose by changing the narrative in order to have a reflective moment. But also a lot of the things that were brought up to me while I was making that work was the use of my text over found footage and putting that together to sort of speak in a way that is very plain Hmm. but i guess allows you to mull around in a recognizable history or recognizable feeling and i think that was presented in its strongest um during the video the origin of the blues because the origin of the blues was this sort of made up monologue not made up but like a monologue that i wrote thinking about confusorella confusorella's mission to find the origin of the blues in order to um, help her people heal, to at least have a moment to heal. And I had a really interesting conversation with Colleen Smith, um, this artist who is uh, phenomenal, known for her um, immersive video um, installations. We talked about what the blues meant. 
and she made me realize that the blues is not is not only negative it's also very positive that had not occurred to me and so at that point and that's whenever i was showing the origin of the blues at uh the studio museum in harlem uh for their focus mm-hmm. uh show and at that point i think i sort of put the blues on suspension from sort of my use of it and i guess thinking about what the blues actually means for me if i'm thinking about it both positive and negative if i'm reaching for this expression that is whole for me where it's neither negative or positive but it's sort of always on a pendulum swing between being dark and light and perhaps soft and loud at the same time this was at the beginning of the onslaught of uh televised police brutalities mm. and killings and i felt like that was the source of blues for me because every time i would see that it sort of remind me of my insignificance or it made me imagine one i think it took for someone to sort of say you know well that's not all that blues has to offer and i was thinking about the blues as like the history of it it coming out of the farming legacy people jumping on trains and traveling and sort of talking about their stories but it evolved and i think i was sort of stuck at the beginning of where it came from mm. and i don't think i was really f- i was sort of like combining i was combining this past definition with my uh contemporary experience there's a sort of middle part that i had left out and it's funny to be thinking about that right now because i still do that i i combine the past with my contemporary position and I almost feel like I'm trying to pull the past definition or the past form into the contemporary through intuition. Sort of like what could that have been in a kind of nonsensical way, right? That becomes poetic because like a chair, like a chair has been a chair, been a chair. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if chairs will ever change, but I'm just thinking about like the school chair, the school chair, the child's chair that who knows how long it's been at my grandma's house. It probably hasn't been there that it's been there long enough, but like the wood inside is not rotted. So I don't know. Yeah. It might've been there for a long time though. And so that question of origin is really interesting. And I think, so like the, the intentions of that Confucerella work continues on. And I knew I needed to go to grad school because the aesthetic didn't speak to me. It didn't, I don't think the aesthetic was evolving with the way that I was re-understanding my interests. Mm. And also I wasn't, I don't know if I was in a position to be able to define them in the way that I'm able to define them now, because I'm sitting with them in a different way that is a bit more physical. It's more personal. And from there thinking about in general, um, just ideas of, of being, of black ontology, thinking about, you know, what does it mean to exist and not to exist at the same time? What does that look like? What other modes of healing can be manifested if sort of healing in the reality is not possible right now? I know many people, including myself, that sort of struggle in finding the right therapist. Yeah for like mental health and just thinking about the fact that so many 
black women are not believed in their pain. So then how, how else can we do that? And my methodology is definitely a combination of working and dressing. And I think of dressing because I think that it's, um, it's a tender, has a tender connotation to it when you're dressing the yard or the things in the yard. Because it almost reminds me of like dressing a womb or like, you know, dressing someone for their best, to look their best, mm-hmm. to be their best. It's like a preparation for something else, some event or some eventuality. Event. Or- exactly. I like that kind of ambiguity, but I look for ways to be specific. I mean, that requires, I think, an audience and sort of, you know, knowing if like what is being communicated it's being communicated and so because there is like yard work like that has been that's ha- that has its history like the american yard i'm thinking specifically like the black yard like thinking about ways in which you can have property and um and own your space and protect your space through these sort of intuitive motions that make sense in the grand scheme of things or correlate with something else. That also makes me think, though, about, like, do you actually ever own it? Or could someone take it away? Or is it something that you were forced into, like with the redlining? Like, you know, this is where you are, and then you have to make the best of it. Mm. Mm. You know, and make yeah. that your home, even though that's not where maybe where you want to be. Or mm. Yeah. There's a story of a lady named uh, Mary Gilmore. She had a bunch of... She had her yard. And I mean, like, it was like fence up, fabric everywhere, and all this stuff. And uh, the city sent bulldozers and brought documents basically saying, like, your house is an eyesore and we're going to take all your stuff. Mm. And they, w- when she wasn't there, they took all her stuff in the yard. Mm. And uh, she prayed over it. And then she got her broom and she started sweeping her yard. Like, and sweeping the soil. Like, that's, mm. you know, sweeping the soil, cleaning the soil, almost like getting rid of the bad spirits. And then made her yard again. Just started mm. doing it again, but setting up specific things that were like, you know, like she had a piece of flat board that had weapon written across it. <laughs> Just like, you know, things that might not seem real, like real defenses, but that mm. sort of maybe create a sense of realness in yourself or just like... Or resistance. Resistance, yeah. Resistance of being removed and, uh, and also like just like in memory. So there's Christina Sharp wrote this book on uh, being in the wake. It's called On Blackness and Being. She talks about the wake being this, um, this methodology of looking over the dead. And also living in the wake. So being alive, sort of back to that sort of question of like, what does it mean to exist and not to exist at the same time? Mm -hmm. So she talks about wake work being this kind of um, process that we do for others or process that we do um, for ourselves, specifically thinking about what does it mean to be black in America? What does it mean to be sort of the other, the dispensable, the, you know, the sort of um, the insignificant What does it mean to be that and to witness death? So it takes this question of powerlessness and it finds, I think the idea of it finds 
ways to use that in a productive way. And that productivity being by recognizing when the wake is presenting itself and then knowing sort of when to give over a sense of yourself in order to heal, Hmm. like to offer healing. Like we were listening to a podcast today talking about the nod. So the nod being sort of this recognition of someone else, Um, specifically in black communities, just when you're in a predominantly non-black area and you see one other black person, there's sort of this nod. But generally, I think people do nods in in general, just sort of like as this identifier, like I, I acknowledge you. And it's stuff like that, that just sort of like helps, you know, and it's, it, it seems like a bit of sand, but it's when you recognize that other people who are possibly going through the same thing need that sort of um, insistence upon their life, you have that nod. So I feel like that that makes me think of like the sort of commonplace mundane aspects of being in the wake, sort of like caring for the dead. And so I think about that in my work think, and thinking about the past and sort of thinking about because my grandmother passed away recently and I don't know how comfortable I am in talking about her death all the time. Yeah. But I feel like um, I can honor her in sort of taking these remnants of her and giving it new purpose. And my grandmother's like had always has always been like a private person, a humble person who didn't like a whole lot of praise, you know, but um, if it came from the right people, she loved it. If that makes sense. Yeah. People she cared about. Yeah. People she cared about. She knew it acknowledged. And, and so I don't feel like I have to expose her name directly in the work. I mean, talking about her, yes, but also not just identifying the power of her life being a single moment, but being part of a series of moments where I guess beingness carries its potential for transformation, for being able to reveal moments of knowledge like this kind of knowledge that comes from intuitive work in the yard Mm. this sort of like not like you know do 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 with what you got mentality not not sort of looking at it simplistically like that but doing things over and over again doing things with a kind of method so that you um, can get to a certain point for yourself and doing things for pleasure. Or I ritual. Think. Ritual. Like if you're cleaning. I mean, cleaning is... Or with reverence. Reverence, yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's um, a lot that can be learned from the mundane, from the seemingly mundane. Mm-hmm. And a lot that can be experienced from that. Yeah, it makes me... Yeah. I was going to ask you about you know something that people could consider very mundane, like chalkboards and chalkboard paint and that's something that seems to occur a lot in your work like what's what's that's a pretty mundane thing to most people i would think chalkboards and chalk it's also like an archaic thing seemingly yeah seemingly um because i grew up with chalkboards like it's funny um i've been asked like why don't you use a whiteboard and um i mean there are whiteboards now in a lot of schools but they're still very much like chalkboards are very much used and sometimes advocated for 
because they have a tangibility that whiteboards don't have. There is an experience you have in using a chalkboard that is very different from using a whiteboard, I would argue. Also, whiteboard stain. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for my purposes, I really like I like this idea of mark making and inscribing. But impermanence, too. Impermanence as well. And so that and thinking about at the very beginning, like talking about um, education and like these sort of systems these systems of abuse coming out of education or the lack of education. Like uh, we were listening to a podcast that was talking about um, how the prevalence of racism has a lot to do with lack of education. And so it's interesting for me to think about how those who are the victims of racism have more education about racism than those who are, you know, encouraging a system of racism to continue. And yet the people who are victims of racism don't have the education that they would need then to sort of make things better for themselves, like to escape that racism, but you know, potentially which not is lose like, their land or whatever right. it is. Yeah. And so I think that's like a continuing site for me to be using. Cause again, location is important. And I think merging that the soil from a location with the chalkboard, which is like this tool, this universal tool for education, I think in a different way than whiteboard is. And then also just thinking about the history of the chalkboard um, and the history of the grid, for that matter, because uh, I use the grid a lot, the grid in my work a lot. Both of them have a lot to do with uh, witnessing, um, I think. Like chalkboard came about, you know, being a tablet for schoolboys to be able to teach each other stuff so that, um, you know, the ones that were sort of showing the younger students were like the witness, right, of the actual lessons and had to teach the students. It was also like a way to make learning more affordable just by getting rid of the uh, necessity of needing paper, which was like extremely expensive at the beginning. It's like a chalkboard. It's reusable. It contains, um, you know, if a a really old chalkboard is really nice to look at because you can see it's sort of scars. Mm. Um, You can see the things that have sort of, like there's one in my studio that has just this long scratch across it. And like to the point where like that part, you can't draw on it anymore. And so I think there's a lot for me to be thinking about in terms of like carving into it, making certain parts of the chalkboard unusable, unusable. Um, Mm. And like the grid, the grid has always been a tool for perception uh, for the artist Albrecht. He invented a few grid machines I love calling them machines. I mean, that's kind of how they thought of them, even though it's like not yeah. made of metal or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, like created these viewing contraptions for other artists to then be able to see reality. And mm. it was like so cool at the time because people were just, I guess, were, were having trouble depicting things in front of them. And uh, for us, it's like, it's not impressive. But for them to be able to break down a scene into squares to make each piece digestible and then to, you know, 
um, use it in that way. I mean, we use it now for murals. We use it now for big scale things because we still can't, we can't see that big. Yeah. Or we can't draw that big without sort of distortion happening. And, uh, and also just thinking about city grids. Well, um, so the American cities were like the actual like city grids, except for like the older towns like, well, maybe not Boston, but like New York, New York's not lower New York. Yeah. You don't have lower Manhattan. Yeah. There are certain parts. And so those, the old sense of cities wasn't a perfect grid, but now you have places like Houston and places like even Austin that sort of like have more of a grid, Mm -hmm. um, arguably. And the it's, grid is part of the redlining too, obviously. Part of the redlining, need needing the power, but also we need the we need the grid, which I think exposes a lot about us because I think we need we need we need an illusion of order. I I believe that like a lot of people need an illusion of order, even though everything's chaos, because it gives order and meaning to that chaos, and I think that's sort of part of our need to find ways of meditation in the mess of things and so like when we think of new cities think of them as a grid when we think of streets crossings we think of it as a grid and so i'm like combining these two sort of mundane commonplace tools and just seeing how far can i stretch them to where i can uh pull meaning out of them that sort of anchors or provides like context for this sort of personal archiving this personal work of watching over the dead how can that hopefully challenge or make us think differently about the purpose of education um for who are we becoming educated for and for what and just in thinking about grids just sort of like reminding ourselves to look to look a bit closely like for me the success of a piece is um if i'm able to create a weird sense of peace and disturbance to keep people there longer to sort of sit with it and sometimes it can be hard because a lot of my work on the surface level you're not able to sort of see that research you're not able to receive that information and so a lot of it is the form and the experience with the form Mm -hmm. i'm not necessarily interested in making didactic work but i'm very interested in sort of using using research and personal archives and communal archives to pull out some kind of poetic feeling that sort of takes out takes from all of that research of feeling yeah if that makes sense isn't your work potentially in a way a nod to the past and the research that you're doing Mm -hmm. in relating it to contemporary life or i'm just kind of trying to pull together some things that you were saying but it is a nod in a way to the past it is it definitely is um it's a nod to the past, but it's also like uh, taking from the past the uh, sort of the ghost of it. Like when you see a ghost, you're not quite sure what you're looking at. I say this like everybody's seen a ghost, <laughs> yeah, but, like, but like, <laughs> but like, but um, like, 
I guess like when I'm thinking about the ways that we think of ghosts appearing or when something's been actually erased and then pulling from that. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I haven't been able to uncover everything about my family's past, about my family's history. Like there's so many questions. And without that information, I have stories that are in bits and pieces and I have uh, a kind of ethos that becomes that ghost of like the non-existent information and the existent information sort of combining it. So the, the loss of information, I think, creates a kind of ambiguity that I think still has information there, I guess is my argument. Yeah. Like there's still information there and making an, making, creating an ethos around the work is really important for me. So yeah, so I, I embrace the sort of mundane aesthetic of the like chalkboard of the grid. Or the broom and the soil. Of the broom, of the soil. These are sort of commonplace things. But I think I'm having this sort of intuitive conversation between all of them that sort of fits together through the research. And like I was saying before, like, you know, this could make a really good book. But yeah. I'd much rather struggle with it through artistic means. Because uh, I think it's hard to get emotions from documents in the sense of like, what is the feeling of actually being there as opposed to reading about it? And then what happens whenever you do read about it and you associate it with that? Maybe you could talk about intuition a little bit, Mm -hmm. just how that feels for you, how you use intuition in your work. I I feel like that's trusting your intuition. That's not like a given for everyone. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's something that different people struggle with and some Uh, people have like overridden it with their mind or whatever it is. They, They choose not to... I feel like intuition, there's like a moment where you can catch it and then if you don't, if you're not paying attention or you're not listening to it, you don't trust it, then it can be, it's fleeting. I just wondered how, what your sense of intuition is. For me, intuition is, has a lot to do with patience and a lot to do with being aware. And for me, that, that means that I have to struggle like through the intuitions that fail to arrive at the one that makes sense mm. not i don't know if all my like not all my intuitions are good <laughs> there are some intuitions that sort of fall on their face and there are other intuitions that sort of just need that patience like do what you got to do leave it alone come back look at it with fresh eyes i know a lot of people who do that i mean just like you do something in the studio you think you're feeling it but maybe you're not quite sure I think that's the intuition where you have a little bit of reservation. And I think that's when you have to listen to what you're doing. And when I say that, I mean, um, if you do this action, how does that speak to the others, to the other actions? How does that speak to the whole? What is that narrative on a narrative like of the of the sculpture or of the of the narrative that you're creating? Like, how does that change the outcome? I would say that's how I try to look at it. So like when I'm working, currently this chair, when I'm working the chair, I'm trying to listen to what it needs in order to do the action that I'm hoping for. 
And sometimes the action doesn't happen in a way that I want it to. So there is a degree, like there's a negotiation going on where there is a level of planning, but there's also a level of the material doing what it has to do, what it wants to do, and recognizing its breaking points. I think the intuition is, that's where the awareness comes from, like recognizing the breaking points, recognizing what's going to give you sway, like what's going to give you a bit of bendability with it. I really, I, th- I, I think I learned the most from those moments and I'm thinking that's sort of, that's what I'm thinking about in terms of knowledge. And so then I have this sort of developing learning that I'm having with the chair. And then whenever I film it doing the actions that I've, that I've intended for it to do, that sort of is its own kind of doing, like sort of like when you're watching somebody sweep up a room at least for me when I when I when I see somebody cleaning up I'm sort of like where are they going to move to next or like what would I do you know like it's a spatial exercise mm-hmm. I think that's that's sort of what I'm what I'm thinking about um and moving forward I would love to do wood I'm planning on doing some more communal projects uh like creating sort of chalk works for multiple people to sort of like speak to inscribing and like taking up space using the everyday definitely have a thing for the everyday object yeah. <laughs> um yeah because i mean like i've 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 definitely have been challenged to like use more technological like sleek mm. um type things and um i think my resistance is that they are sort of stuck in their time i don't know i just i feel like like um like okay like this recorder 10 15 years from now is it going to still be like a great recorder yeah right probably not (laughs) (laughs) just saying it's going to be an object and it'll be useful for maybe its next life but like a chair is useful. So then what does it mean for a chair to not be useful anymore? If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, or like for a chalkboard to not be useful anymore. Like these things were like invented how long ago and they're still pretty useful. And they were technologies of their time. But now they're not seen as that because I think we've taken mundane, seemingly mundane things for granted. And I guess that's my comment on I guess our predicament right now and not right now, but our predicament concerning race and difference. It's like, I think we take a lot of the phenomenon, the the beauty of our differences for granted um, in the, in the sense that like, you know, we either assume that they're safe already or we assume that they're not important. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you saying that. We should probably wrap this up, but I was just wondering if you had any final words, just or thoughts about, or any any words that you'd want to share with any artists that are listening about um, oh. anything that you've figured out about being an artist. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I found this uh, this post that I thought was absolutely great. This person, Daniel Holland at Danny Dutch, posted this and. It spoke to me, and maybe it'll speak to 
everyone that will read this. As far as I can tell, this is a creative process for most people. One, this is brilliant. Two, this is tricky. Three, this is shit. Four, I am shit. Five, this might be okay. Six, I'm now interested in the next project more than I am this one. So forgive yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Forgive yourself because this too shall pass. (laughs) That's where I'm at right now. (laughs) Yeah, just trust the process, trust the journey and... Yeah, and uh, be aware. I think I think awareness is so underrated. Yeah, just say a little bit more about that real quick. I get really, really upset when I'm like walking around and sort of people bump into me mm. because they're so stuck in their own world. And I get like, you know, you're excited to be around your friends or whatever, but I'll bump into people by themselves because they're so sort of into whatever they're doing or into their own world. And... I think awareness is when you are constantly telling yourself that you're not the only one. And I think that by asking yourself, how, how is everyone else doing in a room? How, how is this plant doing? You know, like anything outside of yourself, sort of considering their well-being or considering the well-being of anything, everything outside of yourself, making that a habit, I think helps to be more aware and probably also just being open to connecting to relating to or understanding how similar you are to everything being aware of yourself is extremely important i think um and being aware of how you're feeling and allowing yourself to feel allowing yourself to feel and not punishing yourself for it not excusing yourself for it just sort of recognizing it i think gives you a lot of power yeah yeah well thanks ariel thank you i really appreciate your time i really appreciate all of this this is like a good way to unwind oh good (laughs) cool all right well have a good evening you too thanks for listening one more thing before you go If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. 